This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. When the University of Leuven professor of theoretical physics Thomas Hertog first met famed cosmologist Stephen Hawking, he found himself confronted with two questions. Why is the universe the way it is? And why are we here? The two would go on to seek answers to these profound questions during a close collaboration that lasted for 20 years. In this episode, Professor Hertog tells us about his time working with Hawking, his new book, On the Origin of Time, and the path that led the two of them to hit upon a revolutionary new idea, the theory that the laws of physics are born and evolve as the universe they govern takes shape. In the book, you mentioned that when you first met Stephen, he said to you, why is the universe the way it is? Why are we here? That's like a really intimidating, like big question to be asked the first time that you meet somebody. So how did you feel in that moment? You know, were you prepared and what impression did you have of Stephen? Okay, yes, this was at a job interview in a sense. Yes, that was a non-trivial, uh, a non-trivial job interview. But of course, I, I, I sort of knew where the question came from. So this was the late 90s. And in the late 90s, the multiverse idea became very popular among cosmologists and, and theoretical physicists. So that's the idea that there are just many universes, that the Big Bang uh, was not unique, that our Big Bang was just one of many Big Bangs, and perhaps these different universes have different laws of physics. And so yeah, some universes would be fit for life, uh, in some universes life could develop, and in other universes it couldn't. So this was a whole new idea, a whole new way of thinking about this perennial question, why the universe down at the level of physics appears designed. The, the whole idea of the multiverse was essentially saying, well, maybe there is no design. 
maybe there are so many universes that once in a while you find one which is fit for life, a universe in which stars and galaxies can form, in which the right mix of particles exists, a universe that doesn't expand too fast so that gravity can act. There are a whole range of properties that are needed down at the level of physics in order for a universe to become habitable. And so that was the context. That was the context of that first conversation that I had with Hawking uh, when he was essentially debating whether or not to take me on as, as his PhD student, right? And it's very different. The multiverse idea was so, I guess, so popular at the time because the alternative explanation seemed to be that there must be some sort of golden mathematical rule that dictates how the universe should be. Clearly, yeah, that was never found. And so I think that was sort of that shift was going on uh, in the late 90s. Still, I could feel that Stephen was not entirely happy with that whole idea of the multiverse, even back then. So you mentioned the what you call uh, biofriendliness in the book, which is really interesting. So you meant you talk about this perfect mathematical balance. How perfectly balanced exactly is it? You know, can we can we even put that into perspective? Sure, you can do a thought experiment and play God, so to speak, and twiddle with the laws of physics, and then you can simulate what would happen. And it turns out that quite a few properties are accurately fine-tuned, so to speak, up to a percent level and, and, even, and even, even way beyond. There are also a number of discrete properties of the universe, which you just can't twiddle a little bit. Think about the number of dimensions we have, for instance. Three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. If you change any of that to four dimensions of space or two dimensions of time, it would just not work at all. Four dimensions of space, as far as we know, you wouldn't have stable atoms or stable solar systems. So very basic things would just not work. So the list is long and, and perhaps the most mind-boggling example is, uh, is a famous one by now. It has to do with uh, what people call the dark energy in the universe. So the dark energy is essentially an energy which we associate with empty space. Empty space doesn't seem empty, but filled with uh, a sort of uniform pressure and energy. And that leads the universe, the ex that leads the expansion of the universe to accelerate. Well, but the density of dark energy in our universe is extremely, extremely small. It is a huge factor smaller than, than what you might have thought it could be. And that has been essential in order to get, say, seven or eight billion years time in which the universe was slowing down, and that's what you need to form galaxies and stars and planets and life and so forth. If the dark energy had been a little larger, that whole period of hesitation in the universe would not have happened. And again, the universe would be lifeless. So, yes, it's seriously mind-boggling. And so the question is, and that's essentially the, what, what you were saying earlier, why did the Big Bang get it right? 
so that billions of years later, the conditions for life would be there. So we've mentioned the Big Bang and a lot of this hangs around that idea. So for people who perhaps don't know what it is, is could you explain it simply what the, the current thinking is? Perhaps naively, we think perhaps of the Big Bang as some sort of extremely hot explosion. But in fact, the Big Bang, as we understand it, is a much more fundamental beginning. Crucially, it, all, it involves also the beginning of time. So the Big Bang in, in, in this grand theory of Albert Einstein, the, his theory of general relativity, is really the origin of time. And so it's a fundamental beginning where if you think about it, and this is the crux of the hypothesis that I developed with Hawking over, over the years, may signal also the beginning of the laws of physics. So it's a really fundamental beginning. That's one hypothesis. Another hypothesis could be, well, in that multiverse, multiverse thinking, the Big Bang is, of course, not the ultimate beginning. It would be a sort of yeah, transition in an ever-existing, giant, inflating space, presumably. But that comes with its own paradoxes, uh, I should say. So I'm leaning more towards the idea and that is essentially the, the, uh, central in my book as well, that the Big Bang was, was a genuine, genuine origin. To the extent that we always tend to ask, well, what was there before the Big Bang? In our theory, the question doesn't even make sense, because the very notion of time, and therefore the idea of causality, the idea that there should be a cause of the Big Bang, doesn't seem to have any support. And that is, of course, very, very strange. But the Big Bang really is something very, very strange. One of the, the, the keys in this, in this puzzle is that the idea that the universe is expanding. So how do we know that? You know, How have cosmologists figured that out? Right. Of course, the whole high, every... It's the central inside of modern cosmologies in Einstein on which, on which everything rests, right? So there are two things to, to say here. The expansion of the universe, which you, which you should think of the expansion of space itself, like a balloon, is something which is predicted by the theory of Einstein. Somehow, and so Einstein, what did he do with his theory of relativity? He brought space and time, which for Newton were metaphysical concepts, he brought this into physics. Space and time became physical entities, the fabric of space-time. And, and the idea of gravitational waves, for instance, ripples of space-time is a very tangible manifestation of this. But then people working with Einstein's theory in the 20s realized that Space and time cannot just remain fixed, according to Einstein's theory, even though Einstein himself didn't quite like that idea. And so they predicted that space must be expanding. And therefore, of course, that if you go back in time, space must be shrinking. Now, if space expands, it means that the distance between galaxies must be expanding as time goes on. So galaxies, even though they don't quite move, because they are sitting in this inflating space, 
the distance between them increases. And so if you send a signal from one galaxy to another, that signal, in a way, yeah, has to catch up with that expansion. It undergoes that expansion while it's traveling, and that has an effect. A signal, a light signal, a light ray, traveling through an expanding space is going to be shifted, its color is going to be shifted towards the red of the spectrum. Its wavelength is going to stretch while the light ray travels through space, for instance, from one galaxy to another. And so a very clear manifestation of the expansion of the universe is that we should see distant galaxies we should see the light from distant galaxies redshifted, as we say. And those redshifts were observed very soon after the theoretical discovery on the basis of Einstein's theory that our universe is expanding. So, and there's a sort of background hum that's left in the universe, right? Yeah. I'd say so, yeah, uh, ahem, that's a good way of saying it, yeah. Right, so now, if you're bold and you trace the idea of the expansion backwards in time all the way, or almost all the way, at some point you're going to find that all the matter in the universe is squeezed into a small volume. And if you squeeze matter into a very small volume, it's going to heat up. And so you're quickly driven towards the conclusion that sometime in the far past, the universe must have been hot, must have been very different, must be like, have been like one giant fireball. And now is the crucial point. The heat of that early universe can't just disappear because it's literally all of space that is heated up in these earliest moments. So the heat of the Big Bang with the expansion of the universe can cool down, but it can't disappear because the universe is all there is. And so that was a key prediction. If the Big Bang theory were right, we should somehow be immersed right now in the cold afterglow of that primeval heat. Decades later, in the 60s, that afterglow, that hum, as you say, was, uh, was, was, was observed, was found. In fact, it was found by huge radio antennas, which were being constructed in the 60s for intercontinental communication. Why radio antennas? Because the, these giant radio disks, they are sensitive to cold, long wavelength radio uh, radiation and, and that's what the Big Bang is, is, is now. The, the temperature is about 2.7 Kelvin, so minus 260 something degrees. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's Accelerated Degree Programs. 
Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. So another thing that feeds into this is the idea of this singularity, which I believe came from studying black holes. So now we go back to the early universe and it's very hot and we have that radiation and now you're really asking, well, what if we go even further back? And then we come to what we were saying uh, a few minutes ago, then we come to the origin of time, to uh, what you call, what in Einstein's theory would be a singularity. In fact, that was a key insight of, of Hawking in the 60s. And indeed, as you say, he was using the techniques that uh, Roger Penrose had been developing in, for, in, in the context of black holes. Penrose had shown that inside black holes, time comes to an end. So that fabric of space-time, which is this physical thing ever since Einstein, doesn't, doesn't just go on and on and on. It can really sort of crumble and, and destroy itself. It's the most strangest thing about Einstein's theory, that it can that it sort of predict its own downfall, its own demise. It crunches in, inside black holes, and then Hawking ingeniously turned Penrose's argument all the way upside down and showed that the fabric of space-time has, has a beginning, that time has a beginning in a Big Bang. And so that is the basis. That is the basis of the conundrum that we mentioned earlier, like, okay, why is the universe fit for life? Why did the Big Bang, which is such a fundamental, mind-boggling, unimaginable origin, namely the origin of time itself, how does it come that out of that Big Bang emerges uh, a bio-friendly universe. So we're talking about uh, space-time, we're talking about relativity. So perhaps some people won't be familiar with exactly what the relationship between time and gravity is and how that's explained by Einstein. I mean, are you able to sum that up briefly for, for those? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. We're always talking about time and space here, but really gravity comes along for the right, I would say, right? This theory of Einstein that we're talking about, about space and time, uh, his theory of relativity, it's really a theory of gravity. But gravity, according to Einstein, is not a force. It's not a force that we sort of postulate that exists. No, gravity is, in a sense, an emergent phenomenon. It comes about from Einstein's equation. And, and how so? Well, the equation, like any equation, has two sides. Eh? So there's space and time, the shape of space and time on the one hand, the evolution of space. But on the other side of Einstein's theory, Einstein's equation, resides the matter. And so Einstein's equation, Einstein's theory, is really a dialogue. It's a dialogue between matter and space and time, the shape of space-time. And the way the dialogue works is that matter will tend to bend, will tend to curve space-time in its neighborhood, 
And it's that curvature of space-time, that bending, which we experience as gravity. And so the mass of the sun, for instance, will bend the fabric of space in its environment. It will create a little, little dip, say, and that dip is enough to keep the planets in orbit around the sun. So we say, well, this is gravity, but gravity here is a manifestation of that curvature of, of space, according to Einstein. Yeah. So you mentioned the multiverse um, at the start of our conversation. So let, let's have a look at the multiverse then. What are we talking about there? What exactly does that word mean? It's not clear what exactly the multiverse means. But surely in the late 90s, around the time that I, that I met Stephen, the multiverse was generally thought of as an infinite inflating space, a kind of universe generating thing. It was generally thought of a little bit like you imagine it, like uh, different universes would be like bubbles in a giant space. And gradually people realized that these bubbles could be different in all sorts of respects. And so the multiverse became, I would say, an uncontrollable beast. You might wonder, well, why? what were Hawking's reservations with regard to the multiverse back then? It's not just the fact that, of course, we can't go to another universe to check it out. So you might wonder how you can test this. No, I think the problem with the multiverse is worse. It's the fact that if you have all these universes, then you're going to have to ask the question, okay, in which of these universes should we find ourselves? In which universe are we? It's, a, it's again the same question as, as the one you posed at the start of our conversation. Why are we here? But here means in this universe. And the multiverse theory is ambiguous on that question. It doesn't say anything about in which universe we should be, and therefore it doesn't make unambiguous predictions for what we should observe. But a scientific theory which does not make unambiguous predictions is not really testable, is not really falsifiable. And so from the start, Hawking was zooming in on this, it's almost like an epistemic problem with the multiverse. It didn't feel like proper science. Having said this, it took many years for us to find, to find our way out of this. Eh? <laughs> you say that about the, the, the kind of the, the mystery of the multiverse. So obviously the idea came from somewhere. So I'm thinking about quantum physics, I suppose now, you know, what led physicists to think of this, this concept? As you say, it came from a kind of half-bacon mixture between gravity, classical Einstein kind of thinking about gravity, so about the expanding universe, as we were uh, discussing. But if you add on top of that expansion a little quantum randomness, then you're sort of let 
to almost almost automatically to well this quantum randomness can perhaps we can perhaps extrapolate this a little bit and say that this quantum randomness leads to variations between different regions of this expanding uh, universe and if you then extrapolate it even further a small step to say well maybe this quantum randomness can lead to different kinds of hot big bangs in these different regions so it was a series of reasonings from naively i would say combining einstein's ideas with quantum theory that led to to the multiverse and it was appealing it was appealing because of its radical new take on this mystery of design to the it was some sort of yeah it seemed to resolve that ancient riddle of of of, of cosmic design so there's many different ideas of there's not one idea of what the multiverse is right there's many different ideas i guess so they're all variations of one another i would say but sure sure there are many different ideas but of course the crux of the uh, hypothesis that i developed with hawking is that this was that multiverse thinking was yeah too much of an extrapolation of our sort of yeah mixture of gravity and quantum thinking so in our hypothesis the our big bang is is a, is a genuine origin and so you can say well where is the multiverse the multiverse is in a sense it's sort of dissolved in uncertainty it's kind of it, it sort of disappeared from our equations which was which was an amazing moment really a, a sort of a eureka moment i would say it's a little bit like the Darwinian evolution in biology, and, and hence also the, the, the title of my book is a variation of, of uh, On the Origin of Time, is of course a variation of Darwin's title. You could say, well, Darwin, he doesn't need a zillion other planets to do biology on this planet. It's a little bit the same with our hypothesis. We don't need a zillion other universes, they may or may not exist. But they don't enter in our equations and in our predictive process to analyze predictions. Please tell me more about this idea, this Darwinian idea that of, of the evolution. Right. Okay. So, so that that, that that's a bit the crux of, of 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 our of our hypothesis. Say, I think it sort of offers a third possible explanation for the apparent design of the cosmos. The first explanation was there must be like a fundamental equation like a theory of everything a mathematical rule which dictates how the universe should be the second explanation is what we discussed the multiverse all possible universes are out there and we happen to be inhabitable one the third explanation which i developed with hawking is well maybe it's it's an, in a sense a fundamentally evolutionary explanation it's an explanation in which when we go back into the hot big bang and to the earliest stages of it there where time begins to behave quantum mechanically that we hit on a deeper level of evolution a level of evolution in which even the laws of physics as we know them begin to co-evolve with the universe that is taking shape so in other words, we drive home the idea that 
the Big Bang is not just an explosion, not just the origin of time, but also the origin of the notions of physical laws. And so that gives some sort of a third explanation. But of course, it comes with a price, because that very early stage in which of evolution, in which the physical laws themselves were forged, so to say, could have turned out completely differently. So just like the tree of life could have turned out completely differently, my tree of laws could also have turned out completely differently. So it is not an a priori explanation, as we were long looking for, in fact. So that's obviously a really, really interesting idea. But how did you how did you reach that conclusion? If you if you can even summarize that for me, obviously <laughs> it's years and years of work. Yes, yes, it took a long time. I'm sorry. It's a very good question. How did we reach that conclusion? It's impossible to say. We were trying to figure out these paradoxes to do with the multiverse. So this the fact that any predictions in the multiverse were ambiguous, we felt was pointing towards a fundamental problem with it. And so we were trying to, we were literally simply trying to construct uh, through thought experiments, to try to get a coherent picture. We were trying to construct a better theory, a theory which would allow us to to make unambiguous predictions and, and that we could test. And so the point is that we, the heart of our, of our theory is really a mechanism, if you wish. A new kind of law, a new kind of physical law, which is not a law of, evolu- of evolution. All laws we know are always laws of evolution. The law of Newton is a law that dictates how things evolve. And the same with any other law of physics that we know. But the origin of time at the Big Bang necessitated a different kind of law, we felt. A law that, in a controllable way, describes its own limitations, its own end. It's more like a final or an initial condition. A different kind of law. We found a mechanism for the laws of physics to disappear. And and then, once you have that, you look at these formula and you try to interpret them and what is this telling us? It, oh, it's telling us a different, it's a little bit of a sort of an epistemic readjustment, right? We were always looking for a foundation and now I'm telling you, hmm, maybe there isn't a foundation. It's just like the laws of biology. When we go back to the earliest life forms, the laws of biology disappear. No one is saying that the laws of Mendel exist before there's life. There are emergent properties. We are essentially saying, well, the laws of physics are similar. Except that the evolution that forged the laws of physics happened, of course, way, way back in the heat of the Big Bang. And so they appear to us as eternal truths. But that's just because we're living, we're living in, in the remnants of that evolution. Uh, that's the hypothesis. <laughs> That was the University of Leuven's Professor Thomas Hertog. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. The current issue of BBC Science Focus is out now. 
pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or download a digital copy from your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank <laughs> you.